ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Melissa Clark, coming to you from Canberra on Ngunnawal Country. Welcome to This Week. The search for a deep-sea vessel missing in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean has ended in tragedy after a debris field was found near the Titanic shipwreck. The debris is consistent with the catastrophic loss of the pressure chamber. Upon this determination, we immediately notified the families. The five men on board the submersible are all believed to have died. Stockton Rush, the CEO of the company that owned the sub Ocean Gate. Veteran explorer Paul-Henri Najalay. British businessman Hamish Harding. British Pakistani businessman Shazada Dawood and his 19-year-old son Suleiman. The group was heading to the wreckage of the Titanic off the coast of Newfoundland, Canada, when contact was lost about an hour and a half into the dive on Sunday. James Cameron, the director behind the 1997 film Titanic and a deep-sea explorer himself, has visited the Titanic wreckage site 33 times. He says there have been warnings for years that the Ocean Gate vessel was too experimental and could be a safety risk. I'm struck by... The similarity of the Titanic disaster itself, where the captain was repeatedly warned about ice ahead of his ship, and yet he steamed at full speed into an ice field on a moonless night, and many people died as a result. And for a very similar tragedy where warnings went unheeded to take place at the same exact site, with all the diving that's going on all around the world, uh, I, I think it's just astonishing. It's really quite surreal. Until parts of the sub were discovered, an international rescue mission had spent days searching, hoping they might find the men alive. It was that moment that we all expected but hoped wasn't going to happen. Frank Owen is a former commander in the Australian Navy and directed its submarine escape and rescue project. The clump weights, the detachable jettisonable weights had been released, which says that the monitoring system on board of the hull had shown that things were starting to go wrong. However, you don't get a, a gradual um, response to this with, with a material like carbon fibre. When it goes, it goes. And so it, it would have been very, very shortly after that. They weren't almost certainly at the depth of the Titanic itself, they're on their way down still, but they're above it, and that's why the wreckage has been found near the ship itself. The submersible was operated by a company called Ocean Gate. Can you tell us what they do, how long they've been operating, what's their reputation? Well, their reputation is somewhat flawed at the moment, of course, but uh, I know that they've been operating enough, long enough to have at least one submersible that I've been in, which is called Antipodes, and it was a small submersible designed to take tourists down to the bottom of the Milford Sound. And I was part of the safety case evaluation of it, an audit of it, around 2000. So they have a number of submersibles, but they designed this, this their own one because they felt that the, the processes of the classification societies were too cumbersome. And they took a, a sort of a Elon, an Elon Musk 
approach to saying innovation is the only way and don't get in my way when I do it. There have been reports this week that there were faults identified with this particular vessel several years ago. Uh, Do you have any knowledge or idea of why this voyage would still go ahead despite those warnings? Well, you're dealing with um, an individual, a privately owned um, and very much an individually controlled entity. So, you know, the people who disagree with you are, are removed, got out of the way, and that's what happened. So the the chief technology officer who disagreed was fired. When you deal with an organisation that is perhaps has more corporate responsibilities, whether it be an oil, offshore oil and gas company or even a, a university that um, needs to do, to conduct subsea research, they will minimise their risks by engaging the services of a, a society such as Detnotsky Veritas or Lloyd's American Bureau of Shipping. And they, they, those entities themselves are not government bodies, but they are private companies. But they have an engineering rigour and an analysis that allows them to understand the risks involved and to say that, that they believe the risks have been addressed properly. Can you run me through what deep sea exploration can teach us? We know so little. What's the potential that we can learn for more exploration of the depths of the ocean? We can learn what's on the seabed, what is able to be exploited. They always have used these sort of this sort of technology to explore for the pipelines and for the survey, seismic survey, that when they want to exploit those resources. So in many ways, it's been driven by the experience of the offshore oil and gas industry. And then people have said, you know, the stuff I saw when it was down there was just would just blow your mind. And that introduces excitement and interest from people who would like to experience it themselves. And as the technology has moved, so the offshore oil and gas industry has moved away from manned submersibles. Um, and they've then become available much more readily for um, in a second-hand sense, but later as new build, but in a second-hand sense for for the scientists and the tourists to do it and and for submarine rescue systems to, to use um, former offshore oil and gas um, submersibles. As a submariner, you know there's an, an affinity for people who are drawn to the ocean and perhaps to the deep ocean. Can you explain what drives people to do this sort of exploration. I think for those of us who've never been uh, down deep in the sea, the the appeal is not necessarily obvious. What is it that compels people to explore the, the deep parts of the ocean? Well, I think there's, there is the, that curiosity in what, what is there. there. There's less known about the bottom of the ocean than there is about the surface of the moon. And even Mars has been better explored in a percentage sense than... Uh, and observed than um, than the bottom of the ocean, and yet the the ocean has so many things that affect everything we do, our climate, um, and of course the, the things we live off. So, and and there's quite a, an argument that the things we live off and the harvesting of those is perhaps causing having an impact on on the climate as well. So it is necess- you know there is this interest by. Uh, not just individuals out of curiosity, but but organisations to understand what the potential is for the 
for what's um, not visible through the sea. Yeah, there's a, a personal draw, but also a, a draw of wanting knowledge, I guess, as well. Uh, the story, mm. though, really has captured international attention. Why do you think it struck such a chord with people all, all over the world? They always do. Every time there is a submarine accident, because of the unknown and unfamiliar nature of this, it's not like a car accident that everybody can say, oh, yeah, I get it. They just don't understand it. It's been strange to me that an Australian could be so much um, quoted and, and spoken to from around the world when the relevance of of this country to that incident is is uh, is hard to pull together. Mm. However, there, this is part of this common bond. We're all in this space, and so people just don't understand, and they want someone to explain why it, what it really means in in uh, in human language, I guess. It's always a very human activity. You are always out there to try and save people people's lives. And it's it's a safety of life at sea. It, this is a bland term that they have in a sort of uh, legalistic sense, but, but it, it really is about souls. Frank Owen is a former submariner in the Royal Australian Navy. After months of build-up, the bill to set up a referendum on an Indigenous voice passed the federal parliament. The ayes 52 and the noes 19. Yeah. I call the pass. For supporters of the referendum, it's a pivotal moment in Australia's history, a step closer to their objective of having a direct voice from Indigenous Australia to the federal parliament. For opponents, the bill passing Parliament was a formality, with the real battle to begin now in persuading the public to vote no. We've been doing things for 122 years for Indigenous people, often with the best of motives. It hasn't worked. The Prime Minister wants us to blindly trust him to sign his blank cheque. The voice would be a permanent body representing First Nations people to advise government on policies and laws that impact their lives. Now the legislation has passed, it's up to the Australian people to cast their vote later this year. Look, I think that this will be seen in time as one of those key moments along the road to referendum. Dan Borsha is the ABC's voice referendum correspondent. This is really going to be seen, I think, particularly from politicians from the government, as the moment where the discussion, the debate, the national conversation shifts from parliament into the community. And I think it's fair to say that's where they really want it to be. They want it to be around campfires, around kitchen tables, in boardrooms, on the sidelines of sporting matches. They want Australians to be yarning about the voice at the referendum and the whole debate everywhere that they are. So Parliament's job is done now. It's time for the community conversation? I think so. And I think this is going to be a really interesting tension point because the politicians on both sides are really invested. For the Prime Minister, 
this is something that he has really attached himself to. On the very first words that PM Albanese said when he became Prime Minister on, on election night in May last year was that this was going to happen. And he's then backed that up at the Gama Festival on Yolongo Country in August. And then we've seen that flow on. And really on the other side for uh, Peter Dutton, the leader of the opposition and the leader of the Nationals, David Littleprad, well, they've both bettered down against this. So however you want to look at it or how we look at it from the media lens, all sides of politics is really invested in this. However, the the campaigns from those conversations I'm having, they want this out of parliament because that's where it gets caught up in the parliament cycle and and particularly the news cycle attached to parliament. And they want it to be in the community. They want regular Australians to be either yarning about this and having buy-in for it or buy-in against it, depending on which side of the campaign you talk to. So part of your role has been travelling around Australia and hearing from people about The Voice. Uh, Whereabouts are you now? Uh, And what are people coming to you and asking? What are they telling you about? What do they want to know about The Voice? Yeah, it's it's fascinating because I've got, I'm having such an incredible opportunity to be outside of the studio and outside of the world, Mel, that you and I usually work in, <laughs> in news conferences and parliament sittings and, you know, all of that, which is really crucial, really important stuff. But I'm in, right now, I'm in Dubbo. I've just spent the last couple of days in Walgett where I've been talking to members of the Murdy Party Regional Assembly, which is an Indigenous body that's been set up and re- really run from the community to respond to community needs. Now, yesterday they had this uh, huge load of fresh fruit and veg come of about seven and a half tonnes. And what really blew me away, Mel, was that you had members from all walks of life in the community coming together to help to organise that and to get that out to the community. And then you had on the other side people from all walks of life who were doing it really tough with all the cost of living pressures and the like coming to collect that. So so on one hand, we had this great show of community, yet on the other, the organisers of that, they were telling me, that they're against the voice and that they're going to vote no because they're worried that there hasn't been the buy-in from community, that there won't be, in their words, the right people sitting at the table doing the advising. And I and I said, well, on one hand, you know, you're a regional body. Wouldn't you be seen as the model that could be a local regional part of this if, in fact, it passes at the, at the referendum and then we see that model flow on of a national body and then regional local? And they said, well, yeah, we probably would be seen or could be seen as that, but we're not sure about who will do the representation at the top level and how connected to community they are. Then on the other hand, I spoke to a a gentleman, Victor, in the community, and he said, you know, when I asked about the voice, he kind of indicated his hand wobbling sideways, like, oh, I don't know. And as we kind of talked and talked, he said, look, I'm not confident about It'll it doing all the things that they say it'll do, but I feel as though it'll be something rather than nothing, and we've got to try something different. So he was on the yes side, and then I spoke to another fellow in the community who was telling me that he would be voting no because he's not Indigenous and that the Gamilaroi, the mo- local mob there, were telling him that they didn't think it was going to work and that there were already enough Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander representatives in the parliament across all political parties. And this is, I guess, emblematic of what I'm hearing everywhere I'm going. There are a whole range of views. And one of the things that I'm, I'm noticing is people are nervous about saying, 
that they're going to vote no for fear that they're going to be judged and and given the label of being a racist without hearing why they're concerned or what the questions are that they want to have answered. And I think that's something that's really important for everyone to remember as we're having this big national debate. There's a lot of social pressure involved in this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I know you interviewed Professor Lisa Jackson-Pulver from the University of Sydney on the drum and she said, my heart is filled with joy on one part and trepidation on the other. Does that resonate with you? Oh, it certainly, it does. And she was talking in part about the debate. And I guess for me, that's the, the optimism for me is that we can have a, that we can find a way to have a conversation regardless of where we land, whether that's yes or no, which is ultimately the question we're going to be asked in the ballot paper, but trepidation because we we are seeing there are so many indications that we can't do that. We're seeing really vitriolic, nasty things said. In fact, in Senate estimates uh, where you and the team were covering just a couple of weeks ago, one of our head spies said that there is this real concern that there might be violence attached to this. And when I heard that, it gave me a chill because I thought that's not our country. We don't resolve contemporary political matters through violence. We talk them out and we navigate through that. And I just, I, I worry, I, I am really nervous about that That even before we get to the vote, that there might be these this kind of damage done to us as, as a nation because of just the debate. Regardless of the outcome... What do you hope this national conversation can achieve for Indigenous rights and Indigenous governance? Well, I hope that we can learn more about each other. And that's what I've been really fortunate with this series that I've been doing of One Plus One, the elders, travelling around. I've been sitting down and yarning with elders who have got these incredible life stories that many of them are people that have that are, are somewhat prominent in our community, but we haven't heard this level of personal interview because we often hear of them responding to politics or policy or in the media about something that's happened or, or often has gone wrong. We don't have to often hear the time and space spent to listen to them about their life and their lived experience on their country. And so through that, we're actually learning about these ancient connections and practices, caring for country, of connection to 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 nature and to the environment we're in, and how that intersects with songlines and storylines, and having an understanding of who you are. And while these elders are not my elders, they're all of our elders, you know, because they have said to me that their story is as much mine as it is yours, as it is our listener that we're all part of this country now and every, all of our stories are a shared lived experience. And so, you know, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander experience goes back tens of thousands of years, but that belongs to every single one of us. And I'm hoping that we can find the the way to navigate this, where we can actually see the value in all sharing these stories and these experiences and having pride in this, this longest ongoing connection to country anywhere in the world. Dan Borsha is the ABC's voice referendum correspondent. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are among the most incarcerated in the world and die in custody at vastly higher rates than the rest of the population. This week, the federal government announced that every time an Indigenous person dies behind bars anywhere in Australia, notification of their death will be published to an online, publicly available database. By reporting in real time on deaths in custody, 
we've got a better chance of dealing with those systemic problems. It's about getting the information out there so that we can take action. Regular monitoring and reporting of deaths inside was one of the recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody 32 years ago. Since then, official figures show that more than 540 First Nations people have died behind bars. Tamara Walsh is a professor of law at the University of Queensland. She founded and runs the UQ Deaths in Custody Project, an online publicly available database of every death in custody since 1991. We know that today around a third of people in prison are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. The coroner's report suggests to us that around 20% of deaths in custody concern Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But we can't necessarily rely on that figure because what we found in our work is that most often coroners don't report on the Indigenous status of a person who's died. So the rate of reporting is improving right now around in around a, a third of cases. The coroners will indicate whether a person was Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander or not. Uh, it used to be only a quarter, so the rate of, of reporting is improving. But it still means that in most cases, we're just not actually sure whether the person who died is Aboriginal or not. And as long as that is the case, we can't be firmly certain of what those figures actually are. That's something clearly your project of uh, tracking Aboriginal deaths in custody has encountered. Does that mean it's going to be a difficulty that the federal government's register is going to encounter too? Yes. I mean, without a change at the level of police and corrective services reporting whether the person is Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander or not, no, we will not be getting accurate data. And for us in our project, we consider that to be the biggest problem in the data that's collected at the moment. So whilst real-time reporting is useful because it means that we know exactly what's happening at the time, and, you know, any attention on this issue is welcome because it's so important and it's remained so neglected for so long, unless we improve the quality of the data that we're collecting, we're really not going to know how many Aboriginal people are still dying in custody for sure. How different will the government's register be from the, what you're collecting? Will there be much difference or do they have this, all of the same limitations that you've confronted? Yeah, well, we get all our data from coroner's reports, so that means we have to wait until the inquest occurs and the coroner hands down their findings, and that can take many years in some cases, which is really difficult for families uh, because it means that they are in limbo for a very long time. The uh, Australian Institute of Criminology collects data annually, but really the best information that all of us get is from the coronial information, whether that be through data collection uh, that's done centrally uh, through the government or through coroner's reports. So so having real-time collection of data will help because it will mean that we will know immediately uh, when a death occurs. And at the moment, we rely on the media for that function. So it will definitely improve our knowledge about what is happening on the ground right now. The other concern is that for all the reporting in the world, we're not dealing with the issues that underlie the problems. And I think for those of us that work in this space, we would really like to see some attention on just exactly why these deaths are occurring. The numbers are high. We all know that. 
that. So with all the knowledge that we have already, it's probably time we started dealing with some of the root causes of the problem. We know that non-Aboriginal people die in jail at higher rates than Aboriginal people and on on average Indigenous offenders are are younger than non-Indigenous offenders. But given that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are massively overrepresented in jail, um, is the government really focusing in the right direction with this real-time data or do you need this real-time data to have the scale and immediacy of the problem to then deal with the underlying causes? Look, I think it's, as I say, the more data you have, the better. There's no doubt about that. And it is good to know what's happening on the ground now because otherwise there's the possibility of of a defence of, well, things have changed since that happened uh, and because we don't have very good transparency and accountability within our prisons at the moment, uh, we don't we don't have very much information about what's happening on the ground right now. We rely on service providers and lawyers to give us that information, and that's that's you know unacceptable. So certainly that is going to be useful. But there's an awful lot happening in our prisons, particularly when it comes to Aboriginal people that we're not addressing. Yes, one of one of those issues is the very high number of Aboriginal people who are in prisons and held in police cells. There are complex reasons for that but one of them is definitely systemic racism and that's what coroners are finding when they uh, issue their reports on deaths in custody so there's no doubt that that's the case. The other really important trend that I think is being neglected is the high number of Aboriginal women who we who are in custody particularly in police custody. Uh, many many Aboriginal women die in police custody and they're, they're massively overrepresented and we're not asking those questions about why women are in police custody in the first place. So there's a lot of questions that need that we need to answer, but there's also a lot of information that we have already that we're just failing to act on. The Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody 32 years ago pointed to a system that disproportionately diverts police attention towards Aboriginal people and that means they're being jailed more frequently and often from a younger age. Is that the same circumstance today or has it the situation changed in the 32 years since those findings? Oh, no, absolutely. And anyone who works in criminal law will tell you that. Uh, In fact, the figures tend to get worse rather than better. And we're seeing steady increases still in uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander rates in arrests, in court appearances and in corrective services. So the trend remains in, in the wrong direction. So many of the recommendations that were made by the Royal Commission haven't been implemented. Uh, but even the really basic ones, the way we deal with minor offending is something that is really low-hanging fruit in this space. I mean, I think that, that we just shouldn't be, be cracking down on people for shoplifting, minor theft and public nuisance-type offences. I mean, we just shouldn't be incarcerating or holding people in custody under those circumstances. And we continue to do it. We continue to hold Aboriginal people people in police custody when they are intoxicated uh, under the argument that we are protecting them. And yet so many of them die in those environments because they're not receiving the medical treatment that they need. Uh, We're still seeing health and and hospital services turning people away who are intoxicated or who are very mentally unwell. And when that happens, they necessarily end up in our criminal law system when actually they should be in hospital, they should be inside psychiatric hospitals, they should be receiving mental health treatment, or often they they need physical health treatment. You know, I've seen many inquests where people have died from infections, where they've been turned away from hospital and health services, either 
whilst in police custody or in prison. So we've got to look at the whole service system, not just uh, the criminal law system. There are failings all over. There's much work to be done and the Royal Commission can still guide us in that. Tamara Walsh is a professor of law at the University of Queensland. And that's the episode for this week. Subscribe by searching for This Week Podcast. It's produced by Bridget Fitzgerald, Rachel Hayter, Marcus Hobbs and me, Mel Clark. Catch you next time.